We are here on the wonderful day of Pentecost, uh, a very special day for all of us and certainly for God. If the angels rejoice in heaven at the repentance of one sinner and the baptism of a sinner, uh, how much more maybe they rejoice when we all come together as God's family and worship and praise God. I'm going to give a little bit of a different kind of sermon today in that I am not going to try to prove Pentecost to you. I'm not going to try to prove anything, as a matter of fact. A vast majority of us in this room have proven the holy days. We know them well, we keep them, we observe them. So instead, I'm going to do as the Apostle Peter referred to his own teaching and preaching. I'm not going to turn there, and I'll give you several scriptures today I won't turn to, but in 2 Peter 1, 12, Peter says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. I think that applies to all of you. We know and are established in the present truth. So since you know that truth, I want to remind you of what you know and help you rejoice in that knowledge. I want to tell you a story, in fact, a very long story, but a beautiful story. In fact, my presentation can't possibly do it justice, but I hope it will stir your memory and your vision and allow you to meditate and look forward to understanding the vision even better and better, I hope, than I, though I have appreciated very, very much what God has given us. As I said, I will refer you to many scriptures that I won't turn to, but I will be turning to several if we can have the time to do so, and I better check the clock since we're a little bit behind due to our interruption of, of services today, and I will do my best to get done as close to time as possible. <clears throat> there are four elements. I'll give you a little bit of a uh, heads up. There are four elements to this sermon today. We're going to talk briefly about the history of the world. Then we're going to talk about God's calling of Israel uh, after Abraham, of course, to be his nation. Thirdly, we're going to talk about the enlightenment of the church, and that's where most of our focus, pardon the pun, will be. And fourthly, we're going to talk about the future of the world, which of course is also our future. So let's begin our story with the world of the past. Upon a time, you wonder what that means, right? That's Jeff's shortcut. He never said once upon a time. He always said, upon a time. So when we start to tell a story, we say, upon a time. Upon a time, the world was swaddled in darkness, darkness so complete that there apparently was no light whatsoever. If you've never been in a place like Carlsbad Caverns or some other deep, dark cavern where they turn out the lights, which I understand they no longer do there, sadly, <clears throat> you don't really appreciate what true darkness is. But when you are in complete darkness, it is amazingly dark. We talk about not seeing your hand in front of your face. Well, you couldn't see, you couldn't see a match in front of your face, in a sense, except it'd be like a, it'd be like a spotlight. <clears throat> Darkness covered the earth, and there was no light. You can hardly comprehend that and think about what that means. And of course, God had long since established the earth and the universe, and yet everything was upside down and backward in terms of how it all worked together. It wasn't working. Let's read that because it's fundamental to the theme of the story, Genesis chapter 1. We know it pretty well, as we do most of the scriptures I will cover today, but this one is especially important to the whole story. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we know this to have been some time before the rest of this passage. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So the ocean was covered, but so was everything else. In fact, apparently, as you read further, the whole earth was covered with the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Notice right away we're introduced to the Spirit of God. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Yes, God divided the light from the darkness, and God has, in a sense, been doing that ever since, though not in that same physical, uh, geological, or geographic way as we might look at it. God has been dividing the light from the darkness among human beings. The Spirit moved upon the face of the waters, and change immediately took place. God commands then, and light appears. Light appears. That's an important parallel of the future because God will eventually restore light to all. Let's read another passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6 before we proceed. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. 1 Timothy 6, 15. Breaking into this thought, well, let's read uh, 14 as well. You keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate and King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. If you're reading the old King James, it says something like light that no man can approach to. Same point. Dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So God dwells in unapproachable light. It's interesting to think about that and meditate on what that actually means, though we have some evidence, of course, in our own sun, which we can't approach as well. So we proceed, and I'll summarize some of the story. Soon God made man in his own image more or less said, you can become like me. He gave man the choice to obey him and live eternally or to disobey him, reject him, and die eternally. Mr. Franks covered that a couple of weeks ago. I don't think there can be any doubt, by the way, that he gave Adam and Eve a great deal more information than is written here. And we see the progression of human life very quickly, even without God, and we can see that they had been given a great deal of information uh, that we don't exactly have recorded here. And uh, we, we know that's true even with Christ, because John said if, if everything he did were written, it would fill the world with books. And so we're not told everything. We're given very brief information for several chapters here. Along comes the big bad wolf. Well, actually a big bad angel called Satan the devil, who will later be called a lion. And he tells mankind a big, fat lie. You will not surely die. So they disobeyed and rejected God's offer of life, thinking they could get it the easy way, as Satan had said. But oops, Now they are cut off from God and on their own. They have actually been sentenced to eternal death. 
But God leaves them some hope. He says to Eve, a future descendant of yours will break the head of the big bad wolf. We can still call him that for the moment, the lion, who's actually at that point a serpent and acting like a dragon. And so God gives a promise that there will be a savior to save mankind from this fate of eternal death. Without God's help, man doesn't know how to live. He doesn't have a clue. And God tells us that over and over and over in the scripture, things like man does not know the way to peace or uh, in Jeremiah, uh, it is not in man that walks to direct his steps, various things, the way that seems right to a man ends in death. Over and over, God tells us man can't do it. You and I had to learn that when we came to understand the truth and came to repentance, that we could not do it of and by ourselves. Man cannot succeed. And so gradually, if not fairly quickly, after being cut off from God, he turns fully to evil. Man turns fully to evil, rejects God completely, and becomes worse and worse and worse for hundreds of years. I won't try to date everything for you, but finally God says, enough. God says, enough. All you ever think about is evil and wickedness, and he described them that way in Genesis chapter 6. Your thoughts of your heart are only evil continually. You never get any better. You never get any smarter. You never learn anything. You're bound up in evil, and of course, That's what it's called later in the New Testament, the bondage to sin, the bondage to Satan, the devil. So God says, it repents me that I've made you and I'm going to send a flood and destroy the earth. Maybe if we don't have Ranger fans, maybe we have some Statler Brothers fans. The Statler Brothers in their Bible Bible song says, they say, I'm going to send a little water and wash them all away. Now, I can't do Harold. You see that? Harold would say that about two octaves lower than that. Going to send a little water and wash them all away. Noah is acknowledged and called and his family is saved through the flood that destroys the rest of human life. I know I'm telling you so many new things you never heard before. But mankind is given the opportunity to start over, to start over a clean slate, as we say it. All the evil has been banished. But instead, man continues, in fact, starts right away to sin and reject God. And in a few generations, along comes a hotshot, a big, important man in his own eyes called Nimrod. His wife, Semiramis, claims that he is her resurrected dead husband. So he is both her son and her husband. And evidently, according to tradition at least, he marries his mother. And they both claim to be God. Now they're God. They set up a false religion that Satan will later use to deceive everybody about God and about who Jesus Christ is when he comes as the son of a virgin mother. Now man builds a tower to confront God or to defend himself from God. But God 
still having, of course, the upper hand, divides the languages and scatters them throughout the earth. And so today we have people of all kinds of languages, several hundred languages, of which even Mr. Meeker only knows four or five, probably. Some of you do know four or five, probably. I've known people who know four or five, most of them in Europe. But people who can speak five or six languages, but they're all over the world. And they cannot and have not been able to work together until more or less the present age. So once again, the Creator has seen enough. The Tower of Babel has to go. And he sets out instead to make a special holy nation. Not the whole human race, but a special called out, chosen, holy nation that will obey and worship him as the creator God. That brings us to chapter two of our story, the calling of Israel. God talks to a man named Abram. He's not in Palestine or what we call the Holy Land. He's over in in the Chaldean area, Babylon area. He talks to Abram and tells Abram what he wants him to do. And remarkably, Abram, whom we now know as Abraham, obeyed. Abraham obeyed. He did what he was told to do. And he proved it that he, he, was, he believed God. He agreed to obey God. He proved it with action. He did what God told him to do. And ultimately, God promised him lots and lots of children, of whom all of us are some, many of us physically and And all of us, spiritually, are the children of Abraham. God promised him lots of children and a land of their own, which he took Abraham and showed him, the land of Canaan. 400 years later, these are the children of Israel, whom Christ brings out of Egypt with many miracles. And yes, Christ is that rock that followed them, as we read in Corinthians. And what did God do? He gave them the same choice that he had given Adam and Eve. He gave them the same choice. Choose, he said, between life and death. But he also said, choose life that both you and your seed may live. Choose life. He gave them that choice. And he gave them his law to guide them into that life and that choice. Christ even made a marriage covenant with Israel. He took them to be his own. And he was a good husband, a faithful, loving husband who gave her everything that she needed. How did she respond? Now, if you haven't started thinking about how these things apply to you yet, maybe this is a good time. How did she respond? Let's first see what he said to Israel in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. Exodus 19, verse 6. Oh, I think my pages might be a little wet, too. (laughs) That can't be. They were in the briefcase. Probably ripped off my suit. Exodus 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should, of course, because we're told through Peter that that's exactly what we, the church, are. Because, of course, we are spiritual Israel. He said, you should be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What do priests do? Priests teach God's law, God's way of life. Priests connect people with God, point people to God. 
Not that you have to go through a priest per se, but God, they are God's instruments to instruct and guide and direct his people. <clears throat> Excuse me, his people, whether they are physical Israel or whether they are spiritual Israel. But Israel responded in an unbelievable way, in a sense. Or is it? Israel became a harlot. She was unfaithful to Christ and turned to pagan gods instead and worshiped and served them repeatedly, though God intervened many times to instruct them and correct them and forgive them. And they would turn right back to their wicked ways. So we're finally told in Jeremiah 3.8, I'm not going to go there, but Jeremiah 3.8 says that Christ divorced her. He put her away for her uncleanness. She was an harlot who would not turn back to her husband, but gave her life instead to pagan gods. Now God had given her his law, his truth, even a plan for their own kingdom, which was a picture of the spiritual kingdom he was going to build. And when he established them as a nation, he commanded them to keep holy days. Holy days, among which was this day of Pentecost, called by them the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. Feast of Weeks, which had to be counted, as Mr. Burnett just read to us in the book of Deuteronomy. Let me pick up another uh, couple of quick verses I will read in Leviticus 23 and Exodus 34. Let's go to Leviticus 23 first. <clears throat> we know this to be the chapter that includes all of the holy days. Verse 10, 23, 10. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give to you and reap the harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the eternal to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. We've come to know and understand that that wave sheaf represents Jesus Christ, that he is the first of the harvest. He is the first of the first fruits. He's the first human being to be taken from the flesh and transmitted to spirit, transformed, however, whatever word you want to use, resurrected from the dead and made spirit. He's the first of the first fruits. He's that first handful of grain that was offered during the days of unleavened bread, from which we count 50 days to get here. We see that in Exodus chapter 34, along with what we just read, <coughs> Mr., uh, rather Mr. Burnett just read in, in Deuteronomy. Exodus 34, verse 22. I used to have a little trouble calling him Mr. Burnett, but now that he's so old and gray, it's easier for me. <coughs> he used to just be Andy, or as Jeff sometimes called him from the Andy Griffith show, Ange. <coughs> he was just Ange. <clears throat> Exodus 34, verse 22. And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end, which is the feast of tabernacles. So this is the feast of weeks, which is also the feast of first fruits. And Jesus Christ is the wave sheaf or the first first fruit. And all of us sitting here today are called to be and can be the next of the first fruits. And after us come the rest of the harvest. The holy days were intended to draw Israel to God, to their creator, 
through learning to thank him for their blessings. When they had a harvest, they had a feast, and they thanked God for their blessings. But those days were also pictures for the church, spiritual Israel today, to understand in a later time. They did not understand the spiritual significance of those days, though some few that God called and worked in probably did. There's some reason to believe that people like uh, David uh, and others of the prophets understood something about the picture the holy days represented. Again, there are 20 sermons could be given on the day of Pentecost, and we used to have trouble when we had morning and afternoon services of figuring out how to cover all the material. Now we have one service, and the only way I could figure out how to cover it is just to tell you the story. <clears throat> this day is all about first fruits. It tied together the wave sheaf offering, the resurrection of Christ, which was pictured by that wave sheaf, and then the early harvest picturing the salvation of the church through all ages, God's spiritual nation. Let's jump to Paul's explanation of that when he's defending himself in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I think Mr. Burnett passed, mentioned this in passing regarding the first uh, fruits. 1 Corinthians 15. We call this, of course, the resurrection chapter because it covers so much detail of what the resurrection is about and how it occurs. But in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep, in this case being converted individuals who have fallen asleep, but technically, of course, the first fruits of all who ever fall asleep because everybody who's ever resurrected comes after Christ, who is the first of the first fruits. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So there's a long process here from the time that Christ becomes the first of the first fruits until the time the whole harvest is gathered in, called the Feast of Ingathering in the scriptures we just read, there is a long period of time. There is a plan in motion. We are, a, we are an interim group, in a sense, between Christ and the rest of the world, and we are an interim group between the first resurrection, which brought Christ into the family of God, back into the glory that he had with the Father before the world began, as he put it himself, and when those of us who are God's people in this age are resurrected at the first resurrection. <clears throat> so it's Christ the firstfruits, then those who are Christ at his coming. In verse 23. Those who are Christ at his coming, hopefully, includes all of us, alive or dead, as the case may be. We are the early harvest following Christ, preceding the vast harvest of all human beings before the human story comes to an end. That brings us to chapter 3 of our story, which is the enlightenment of the church. The enlightenment of the church. And I, I hope that term means something to you. It means a great deal to me. I, I can't read the scriptures that use the term or the references to it without 
uh, getting a little bit of chills in my system, not from the water in my suit, but from the, the word on the page. The enlightenment of the church. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, as we approach the day of Pentecost in the scripture here, in the chronology of it, as Christ is preparing to leave the earth and ascend into heaven, the disciples are trying to figure out when he's going to do the rest of the work that he's promised he will do. And he says this in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power for what? Well, first he mentions here to be witnesses of me to the ends of the earth. We're familiar with that as well. I won't turn to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which you probably can quote verbatim. <clears throat> but Christ said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go you therefore and teach. Go and preach the gospel to all nations and baptize people. Power was given to the church to do that. And that power was demonstrated right away on the day of Pentecost. This is... 40 days or so, no, this is 10 days or so before Pentecost, sorry. <clears throat> but another scripture I won't turn to, John chapter 1, verse 12, and I hope if you're not familiar with all of this, you will look at some of these later, but John 1, verse 12 says, to him he gave power to become the sons of God. Power to become the sons of God. Adam didn't have that power. He had that option. He had the tree of life sitting there, which apparently contained, in a sense, symbolically, that power to take of the Holy Spirit and live according to God's plan and God's way. But he didn't do that. He rejected that offer. Man did not receive the Holy Spirit. The tree of life was shut up. And mankind was driven from the garden. And so God then sent Jesus Christ... And after paying the penalty for sin, God poured out the Holy Spirit so that mankind could become the sons of God. We look at it as a, a begettal process. So the power to proclaim salvation to everybody and the power to receive salvation personally were both given by that Holy Spirit being poured out. How was it symbolized at that time? What happened on the day of Pentecost? Well, we think, of course, of the tongues, and sometimes we forget to think about the tongues of fire, as they're called, that sat upon each of them when the Holy Spirit was poured out. God demonstrated his power by fire, as well as the other miracles that took place in that context. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 here. We're still in one, I hope. I, did, I didn't close my Bible, at least. I forgot to tell you not to. Acts chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
I guess a tornado coming through the building might have been appropriate today, but I don't think that was the kind of rushing mighty wind we, we wanted to see. We want to see the rushing mighty wind from God that carries the power to do what we need to do. Verse 3, then they are, there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So God gave them the power to do it in a broad general sense by giving them the Holy Spirit, which is the source of godly power, but he also gave them specific tools through that power, in this case, the ability to speak other languages so that they could do what he told them to do. Not only is it going to happen down through generations and centuries and millennia that the gospel is going to be preached, it's preached right there. So that when those around heard the noise and came to listen, they heard it in their own tongue. And the gospel began to be preached. In Hebrews 12, I'm not going to turn there, Hebrews 12, 29, there is a statement that I also appreciate. Our God is a consuming fire. Every outdoorsman knows that uh, fire provides light, too. Light and fire go together as part of God's arsenal. Mr. Burnett mentioned that he is the father of lights in whom is no shadow of turning. He sent forth fire as a physical demonstration of that spiritual power. And of course, the fire, in one sense, I guess, was spiritual. I don't know how it was manifested, whether it was an actual fire that you could have stuck a piece of paper in and burned. <laughs> probably not. It was probably fire in a, in a less tangible sense, but I don't know that. But either way, God is light, and he dwells in light, and he sends forth light. One of the songs we sing, send forth your light and truth. God's plan includes sharing that light, sharing it with us who are nobodies. God's plan includes sharing his light, his power, his fire, his greatness, his glory with us. His very nature. We're partakers of the divine nature. A little scary when we fall short and bumble something and realize we have sinned uh, to think about, well, wait a minute, I am supposed to be a partaker of the divine nature. Where does this enter in? This sharing of the light is the message of the kingdom of God that Christ proclaimed first in a darkened world and then passed on to his church to proclaim in a darkened world and his church is to live that message so that we are a city set on a hill which cannot be hid. His church is to live that message as a light in a dark world. Over in the 26th chapter of Acts, we have a defense by the Apostle Paul when he is falsely accused. And then he does something interesting. Paul, like the other writers of the Bible, quotes Jesus Christ. In chapter 26, 
He says in verse 17 and 18, and I am going to read this, verse 17 and 18 of Acts 26, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. He said to Paul, and Paul is quoting him as telling him this in his own ears. And what is the purpose? The purpose in verse 18 is to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. From darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, which is in a sense the same thing. From darkness, Satan's way, to light, which is God's way. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Sanctified meaning set apart and chosen, called to be part of his church. And forgiven through repentance and baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit. That's what Christ was going to do then through Paul. That's what Christ has always done through his church and his ministry. And it's what Christ is going to continue to do until the end of the age. And in fact, as, as we think of the end of the age, that is this world in which we live, even beyond that through the millennium and the white throne judgment. Second Corinthians, second Corinthians chapter four, if you will. <clears throat> second Corinthians chapter four. Now, for those of you who hadn't had enough Bible yet, we'll get some. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. The sounds out of place there until you see the rest of the sentence. But it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's kind of a complex sentence and it's, it's powerful, it's loaded. He has shown out of darkness in our hearts. He's caused light to shine through the darkness into our hearts to give us what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Not just the knowledge of God, but the knowledge of the glory of God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is consuming fire. And we're given some more specific descriptions of his throne and his appearance, uh, especially in the book of Revelation, of course, along with some of the things in the prophecies, uh, the major prophets especially. Where's that glory revealed? In the face of Jesus Christ. Not just the appearance of glory in the face of Jesus Christ, which he's described as his face shining as the sun in his full strength and, and then flames of fire within that sun as eyes. Great power and glory. But the spiritual glory of the way he lived, the face of Jesus Christ meaning his countenance, his commitment, his, his appearance in the spiritual sense, who he was, his identity, and his glory is revealed in the way he lived and the way he taught and the way he committed himself to absolute submission to his Father in heaven. Why didn't the world receive that? Why doesn't the world receive the light in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory that's revealed? Well, you're very familiar with this one. I won't turn there either, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, even though it's close here. 
Second Corinthians chapter four says, the God of this world has blinded the minds so that they can't believe. Blinded the minds. Think about blind folks. There are probably some here I don't remember now. But a truly blind person can't see light. Some people have a level of blindness in which they can at least discern there is light. I've known some blind folks who can't even discern that light is present. That's the spiritual state of the world today. It is in blindness. It is in total darkness, like the darkness that swaddled the earth in Genesis 1. And the light shines into that darkness, but what does man do? The Gospel of John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3. It's interesting how different the different apostles writing the Gospels, not all apostles apparently, but how they describe certain aspects of the truth that might not be found in the same kind of words in other places. John chapter 3, verse 19. John 3, 19. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. The light, notice, not just light, but the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They didn't want to know the truth. They weren't looking for the truth. They were happy with who they were and what they were doing, how they were living. They didn't need light. Ah, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is a way of death. He doesn't know that he's blind. Like you and I didn't know that we were blind. No matter how religious or irreligious we were, before conversion, we probably didn't know that we were blind. Now, although Satan is ultimately responsible, as we've read, he's the God of this world, he blinded the minds, yet man isn't altogether innocent in the sense that he seems to have kind of preferred it that way. He, he deserved, I mean, he preferred darkness to light. Why is that? And by the way, that's the reason we have to put so much emphasis on John 6, chapter 6, verse 44, that says no man can come to Christ except the Father draw him or call him. It isn't possible for man to do it. Let's notice 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, This is a critically important scripture for the day of Pentecost. In fact, there are several uh, sermons rolled up into this particular chapter, I guess, that we could give if we chose to focus entirely on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because this says, as we say, a mouthful for any of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I would like to read the whole section from verse 9 down, which talks about man's inability to know. But I'm going to focus on the the kernel of of, uh, the conclusion here in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2 14. But the natural man, the natural man without any spiritual element, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We sometimes wonder why the most obvious truth can't be seen by our friends or relatives or whomever we may be having discussions with. We have family and friends who think highly of us and respect our commitment to our way of life. 
but try to explain to them something as simple as, as the Sabbath or whatever, uh, unclean meat, something physical that they might grasp? No. The mind is not able to discern spiritual things. Now remember, the mind is cut off from God from the Garden of Eden. The, whole, the Holy Spirit was there in the Tree of Life, symbolically at least. If they had obeyed God and taken the Tree of Life, we speculate, and Mr. Armstrong fully speculated in that sense. If you call it speculation, with him I call it discernment and understanding and, and wisdom. But he, he made it clear in his discussions, and I have always believed and accepted the same thing, that the Holy Spirit would have been available to Adam had he taken of the Tree of Life. That's what it is. It's a Tree of Life. But he didn't, and mankind was cut off and has no tree of life and has no spirit of life. And the natural man therefore cannot discern spiritual things, no matter how logical they may seem to be. It's one of the ways we used to, or probably still do, I'm retired. That's one of the ways we discern when somebody is being called. They are able to discern spiritual things that their next door neighbor won't discern. Ephesians 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and again, I've always proclaimed that I hate to read any part of Ephesians 1 and 2 without reading both chapters completely, but we can't do that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, I will read three or four verses here through verse 20. Ephesians 1, verse 17. That the God of our Lord, this is what Paul is praying for them about. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now we understand that to be enlightenment, not just with light coming in the window, but it's the same principle. You're living in darkness and you are enlightened by truth. You're enlightened by a calling that gives you perception of who and what God is and what he wants from you. And so he says he's praying that their eyes of their understanding are enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, <clears throat> excuse me, what are the riches of, his, of the glory of his inheritance uh, in the saints, his inheritance in the saints. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, but he inherits us, in a sense, along with everything else in the universe. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, and now he goes back to to the crux of it all, the sacrifice of Christ, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. He goes on to say he's put everything under his feet, including the church. God's glory is expressed through the coming of Jesus Christ, the perfect life that he lived, the perfect sacrifice that he gave, his resurrection from the dead, And then, of course, the sending of the Holy Spirit to enable us to understand it all. God's power, God's light is delivered to us. Chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter 5, Ephesians 5, there is no 8. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. Do we know this? Do we believe this? Do we understand this? Do we appreciate this? My whole point, in a sense, today is to help us 
rejoice in what we do know and rejoice with the kind of excitement and enthusiasm that helps to establish a greater commitment to never give it up, never fail, never leave it, never forsake what God has given us. These holy days are instruction in who we are and where we're going, and we repeat that pretty much year in and year out. And as I said at the beginning, I'm reminding us, as Peter said, of the things that we already know. How do we manage those things that we know? Verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now we're not only given light, but we are light. That light infuses us with a light that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and goes out to other people in various ways and expressions. I don't have time to detail those. You know them pretty well, and if you don't, you can learn them. But God's Spirit gives us a capacity for all kinds of spiritual activity that we didn't have before and enables us to be his people and represent him and to be a light in that sense to the world. You were in darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light for the fruit of the spirit. Now he goes to a little bit of a specific here. The fruit of the spirit is goodness, righteousness, and truth. Again, very broad terms that contain an awful lot of information. Goodness and righteousness and truth. We were in darkness. Now we walk in goodness and righteousness in truth, which is that light. Colossians. Over a few pages to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. We're exhorted this way. Verse 12 of Colossians 1. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. We have been conveyed from darkness into the very kingdom of God, of which Christ is the king. And we are to give thanks for that. And today is a good day to do that, to be very thankful and appreciative and rejoice before God that we have been given the truth. Peter calls it joy unspeakable and full of glory. The inheritance of the saints in light. We are co-heirs with Christ and we are going to inherit what he inherits, which is described as all things, however you define that. So the enlightenment of the church and the harvesting of the church in the first resurrection is pictured in this Feast of Weeks, this day of Pentecost. Pentecost for the count 50, but the picture is much bigger than the counting the 50. We call it sometimes the birthday of the church or the foundation day of the church. This is the anniversary of the founding of the church. And all of that is pictured in this day, that entire section of God's plan from the time that Christ was resurrected as the first fruits, and that is dependent on all that went before that, of course. But from that day of the first waving the wave sheaf during unleavened bread until the first resurrection, which occurs at trumpets, 
again, symbolically, not on the specific day of trumpets necessarily. God can do that if he chooses, but I've had people tell me, no, it has to happen on the day of trumpets. Well, then how does the Feast of Tabernacles, which pictures the millennium, happen on seven days of the feast? <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't take seven days of the feast and say that's the millennium. No, that's seven days that picture a thousand years. And trumpets is one day that pictures a specific event. Today is one day that pictures a, an event stretched over millennia. But it, we ought to rejoice in it. It should be a day of deep gratitude and rejoicing for us who have been enlightened. Are we rejoicing today for the incredible gift that we have been given? Are you rejoicing today for the incredible gift you've been given? Uh, we could be griping and complaining about something else, I suppose, whatever's going on in the world. Getting almost drowned on the way in, maybe drowning on the way out. We could complain about things. There are problems and troubles all around us. And we have to deal with them, as we heard this week a couple of times already. But we have been given the precious gift of the Spirit of God, the knowledge of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Who could ask for more? Today, this day, shows us that those of us called at this time will be instruments. There's a scripture there in the early part of Ephesians I didn't read that says that in ages to come, he will use us as examples to help others learn. I still have some scriptures. Maybe that's somewhere in my notes, but I don't see it. In ages to come, it's clear that the world is in darkness, but Christ has given us light. Christ has given us light, and we need to walk in that light and rejoice in that light as we go forward. And right now, I need to find the last page of my notes so I can give you chapter four in a couple of minutes, which is the future of the world, unless I just, otherwise I have to do it from memory. Let me see if I can. I'll think of where my scriptures are. <clears throat> that must have disappeared in the, in the rain. I know it was with me at one time. We're told in the book of Daniel, for example, let's go to Daniel 12. That's the first one I remember, so I'll go there first. It wasn't my first scripture. Daniel chapter 12, because this is, this is kind of an important element of what we're talking about today. We've already seen it in several different ways, worded in several different ways. <clears throat> but let's look at it back here as soon as I can find it. Bear with me, I'm embarrassed of not having all of my notes when I have a whole encyclopedia with me up here. All right, I have precedence for this. I have sat in the auditorium and heard Mr. Armstrong do this more than once. I don't remember where it is, but I know what it says. It says that those of us who are part of God's called and chosen and faithful, and I'm paraphrasing, will shine as the brightness of the stars, you're familiar with it, shine as the brightness of the stars forever and ever. So not only are we that light today and supposed to be emitting that light, but when that light is finally conferred fully upon us, we're going to shine, as he says, the brightness of the stars. And that's, most, that's 
probably the most we can comprehend in our pea brains, and so he can't really explain to us the fully the glory that we'll, we will possess, but that's a pretty good analogy. We'll shine as the brightness of the stars uh, forever and ever. <clears throat> and in the book of Revelation, we're told, if I can quickly find that, and I have to think about where it is. Hard to think and talk at the same time here. In the book of Revelation, we're told, and this should come to my mind instantly, but I have found over the last year of being retired that things don't come to my mind as quickly as they used to when I was preaching on a regular basis. It's probably in the New Jerusalem section, clear at the end. Let me go to Revelation 22. Some of you are way ahead of me, I'm sure. For some reason, what should be easy isn't coming easily. That's to humble me so I can go home and say, I blew it again. Mr. Johnson said yesterday he was looking forward to my sermon today, and I said, well, it's been a long time. I don't know if I can give a sermon. Uh, I said, I know some people have told me it's like riding a bike, but they don't know how many times I wrecked my bike. Anyway, we're told that Christ dwells in glory and that the, the light is, so, is such. Let's, chapter 22, <clears throat> verse 5. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. They don't even need light. Back in verse uh, 22, but I saw no temple in it. Sorry, verse, chapter 21, verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is the light. And the nations of those who are saved, ah, all of those in the later harvest who are going to be brought into the family of God, the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor to it. The whole world is going to be enlightened as the church is enlightened today. That's not for us to brag about or be vain about or puffed up about. It's for us to be deeply grateful for and to honor by the way we live our lives and walk in the light as he is in the light. We should be rejoicing on this day of Pentecost that we have a part. We have a part in the very plan and work and ultimate family of God. And it's a glorious part filled with light. Have a good evening and be careful out there.